Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. This week it's the turn of Dr. Juliet McGratton. Now Juliet joins us for the second time and this week she'll be talking about her new book Run Well, Essential Health Questions and Answers for Runners. Run Well is a book that answers the common health questions that every runner asks. It's packed with practical, realistic and sound advice on topics from head to toe for anybody who runs. So, enough of that, let's crack on and hear from Juliet herself. Welcome back to the show, Juliet McGratton. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you again. Is it, it's, um, what is it now, six months since we chatted last? Gosh, I can't, I can't actually remember, but it, it, it feels like quite a long time ago, actually, but I'm, I'm sure it's not. Yeah, six months about that. There's, um, there's been a lot of water under the bridge as far as the world's concerned, isn't there? We've, uh, we've started, I don't think we'd started vaccinating people last time we chatted. Did you, as a, as a GP, retired GP, did you get um, asked to go back and assist with the vaccination programme? Um, so I contacted my sort of local surgery, actually, where I, I used to, to work and said, I'm available if you need me. Um, and they said, if we need you, we will contact you. Um, and I've not heard. So I'm assuming all is good. But I mean, there's a lot more vaccinations to go. So, <laughs> mm, yeah, I wonder if if those early vaccinators have got vaccine fatigue now. And their well, fingers that's have... it. I'm sure they must have. Gosh, it's been amazing how they've uh, got through the numbers. It's incredible. I've got a couple of friends who were uh, retired GPs and they've they've been back volunteering and doing their bit just just mm. maybe one or two half days a week. But I guess if everybody mucks in and adds a little bit of time, it it, it sort of gets the task done much quicker, doesn't it? And it's almost yeah. like it's almost like our version of the war effort, isn't it? Where everybody's mm. got to get involved to to um, to, to sort of uh, try and find victory. Do your bits. Yep. <laughs> and how about you? Have you been vaccinated now? I have. I've had my second one just at the weekend, actually. So uh, obviously it could be a couple of weeks before that's fully effective. But yeah, it was quite nice to get number two um, and not to feel unwell because the first one, I I really struggled for about two days with high temperatures and things. But mm. I kind of didn't mind because I knew my body was doing something. And, you know, and the second one, I was a bit nervous and made sure I had nothing on the next day. And it was absolutely fine. So. That would be the Astra one then, would it, that you had? AstraZeneca? Yeah, yeah. AstraZeneca. yeah, I had the same and I, I experienced the same as uh, as you just mentioned there, um, 36 hours of feeling like I was coming down with a cold. No no cough or sore throat, but definite splitting headache and mm. waking up in the middle of the night just drenched in sweat and then yeah. just, just yep. generally feeling really achy and fatigued. And then 36 hours it, it went. I had nothing after the second one. No, so, same here. So touch wood. I mean, it was only well, it was three days ago. So I'm hoping I'm out of the out of the woods now. <laughs> you you not got any holidays planned for this year then? Foreign holidays? Not abroad. No, no, we haven't. I mean, we love travelling as a family. It's it's something we make a priority. Um, but we we decided that um, even if we could, this year wasn't the year for us to go. So um, mm. we're we're staying in the UK. Um, and actually, one of the things we're doing is quite good. We're doing a house swap with another family. Oh, really? Because, um, yeah, because, you know, um, holiday cottages and things, when there's five of you, uh, this year especially, the prices are astronomical. So mm. that's that's that uh, looks like quite a good quite a good way of doing it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, there's this there's this rush to get out to the sun. I mean, at the moment, we've had some great weather, haven't we? I know it's mm. I know you can't guarantee it as much here, but 
uh, I think just before we, we started recording, I was telling you about how I'd been up to the north of Scotland to the to the mm. sort of northwest coast. And I've never been up there before. It's spectacular. It's it it wasn't warm. I mean, it wasn't hot. It was yeah, it was warm enough to wear it, walk around in shorts if you dared chance that with the midges that they have up there. Um, but I was just thinking how much of this country I've not visited yet. And uh, and yeah, I'm willing to spend thousands of pounds to go abroad to visit other countries and marvel at the splendor of their landscape. Uh, you know, I, I think perhaps, especially how we, we, we're we all aware that the economy has been affected by um, the, the pandemic and Brexit, that perhaps we should be trying to bolster the coffers of businesses at home rather than abroad for starters. There are so many spectacular places on there. I'm really fortunate, actually. I think when I was doing my general practice training and in my sort of early years as a GP I was able to travel with my with my job and uh, well I went to university in Dundee in Scotland and so I spent time working in the Shetland Islands I've been to mm. the Western Isles I've worked down in Devon, uh, Somerset, um, Cheltenham so I have moved around and and because I enjoy hiking and walking you know, I have seen a lot of the country, but there is still so much I haven't. And I know that my kids haven't seen a lot of it as well. So mm. I really want to instill in them that that there is beauty here. But like you say, it is sometimes it is just the weather. Don't get me wrong. I love uh, um I love the guaranteed sunshine on a on a foreign holiday. Not because I want to lie in the sun, because although I, I do a little bit of that, but but it's just I don't know, <laughs> just knowing you can make a plan. <laughs> yeah and yeah. that plan's going to be fine because it's going to it's not going to rain and it's going to be warm mm. and you don't have to carry jumpers and waterproofs and but anyway oh uh, yeah the uk this year well we're not here to talk about the pandemic or traveling in the uk or the, weather. To, or the weather yeah we're here to talk about your new book which is called run well essential health questions and answers for runners mm. so i guess the inspiration for that was once people knew that you, you've got this fearless 261 running club that you're part of and you've been writing for Runners World, is it? Um, uh, women's Running. Women's Running, okay. So I guess you've you've been used to answering the odd question here or there, but as as your um, as your star was rising in the running world and people were aware of your, your background, I guess you started getting more and more unsolicited questions. Um, at least that's what I'm assuming, and that's how you decided to write the book. Um, yes, I mean, I think it, the questions have come from a variety of sources. Um, one of the one of the sources has been my own running journey, because people assume if you're medical that you know about running things or health related running things, but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily because you know that's not part of your medical training. And and I think that actually you you don't often know what the questions are until you try it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. So going from somebody who didn't run to somebody who runs regularly and um, it, it, as part of that journey, I discovered a lot of these things for myself and I, I had to look them up. So that that's definitely been one source. The other source, yes, definitely has been my writing for magazines um, and online um, forums like UK Run Chat and the number of questions that people have asked through those um, and then also from the, the the people that I run with, whether it's friends, whether it's people, like you say, coming along to the running clubs that I lead, um, questions come from all angles. And some of them are great questions. <laughs> and I don't know the answers or I didn't know the answers to lots of them, but I felt in a really good place to be able to find out and research and, and come up with conclusions because they're quite often questions which are difficult to get the answers to. Mm. So I just wanted to create something that put all of that into into one book just for runners to sort of help and 
say thank you for helping me as on my running journey because the running community is such a great place i find a bit of this in the triathlon world as well that that um there's such a range of people out there you've got the people who've been in the sport as long as i have you know for 20 30 years who've still got questions they might know about triathlon but perhaps they don't know about physiology or maybe the questions about what happens to me doing triathlon now as i get older mm-hmm. um, and then there's the newbies that are coming in and asking like what sort of bike should i buy do i can i do it on a mountain bike you know um do, what, what do i do about running shoes and social media and the internet is is a double-edged sword isn't it, it it's it's amazing because you can type in a few words and you can get an answer to your question but unfortunately you get thousands of answers and that just makes you more confused um i'm, I'm forever frustrated by people who, who write to um that some of the triathlon forums i'm either running or um on and they say well what's the best pair of running shoes All right so they were obviously unsure when they started and then they get 150 answers and I'm thinking well that must make you more confused now because you've got 150 answers and uh, it will be based on you know I use these so they're great but they might not suit you um so I've realized that what people need is a trusted authority somebody who has knowledge somebody who has some authority so and credibility so your your background as a gp your involvement in running the fact that you've you do write with credibility for magazines gives you that position doesn't it and now you your book's going to save people a whole lot of trouble in trying to type these things and getting more confused because they'll be able to go to that and at least find an answer and a good start point i do i do hope so i hope i hope so i hope that people will find it useful for for just that and i think the, the the thing about questions is that there isn't a silly question, is there? You hear people no. say that all the time, but you forget what you didn't know. As you were saying, you know, you, you, if, once you become more advanced in something, you forget those those basic things, and those questions are are so important, and they can make or break whether somebody stays in the sport. Sometimes, mm. um, so it, it it is important to sort of try to cater for for all abilities, um, and also I think sometimes questions are embarrassing, or people don't want to ask them, and they don't, particularly at the moment, with the health service being so busy, they maybe don't want to trouble their doctor. That's what a lot of people say, um, or they think it's not important enough. Mm. So having somewhere where you can get an answer privately, where you can just read it without having to bother anybody else, um, I think is hopefully very useful as well. <laughs> mm. No, I, I agree. I agree. I, I definitely think that there needs to be some sort of totem pole that people can focus on to, to sort of, ah, I know if I go there, I'll be able to get uh, an answer it might not be the answer they want i mean sometimes it isn't is it <laughs> but well you know they say if you ask enough people you'll get the answer that you want so what's the point in asking in the first place <laughs> yeah but, but I, I do agree that that you know um there's no such thing as a silly question we've all been there and mm. you can pretty much guarantee also that when you ask that question there'll be somebody else going oh i'm glad they asked that question i didn't want to so you know Absolutely. equally you, you think think well maybe i'm asking maybe i'm asking this question on behalf of somebody else as well or more than one other person definitely definitely well rather than rather than going through your book chapter by chapter um i thought we, we'd have a little bit more fun with that but it, it might ask get, <laughs> get in, there might be some silly questions in there so um i'm going to start off and and ask you what is the question that you get asked most often I think it would probably have to be the old will running damage my knees um, asked by people who who don't run but want to run 
asked by people that are running but are worrying they shouldn't run and asked by family members of people that run because they worry about them. <laughs> so mm. it's a question that, that you have to kind of reassure and answer to a lot of people. Um, so I think that's probably over the years the most common one that I've been asked to answer. Yeah, well, as somebody who's had three cartilage operations, um, <laughs> which which have nothing to do with running, you know, uh, one was one was a bizarre when I twist when I did a tumble turn in the swimming pool, I pushed off and my foot slipped and jarred my knee, and I remember thinking at that time that doesn't feel good. Um, and it wasn't. Another one was as a result of a, a, a bike accident where I broke my collarbone. But as I was falling off the bike at high speed, my knee was, my foot was wrenched out of the pedal and twisted my knee. The other one was just uh, probably a bit of wear and tear over the years from playing rugby. But uh, mm, mm. Um, uh, another conversation I had on another podcast was um, about the number of people who aren't running and aren't doing any exercise. And to me, that's going to be far worse for your body than, than walking or doing a bit of running. I think that is that is the most important take home, really, that not exercising is more harmful for your knees than exercising. Mm. Um, most absolutely, most definitely, there's there's you can't really deny that. Um, and I think, you know, there is so much evidence now about running not being bad for your knees and running being good for your knees that we really mm. need to try to dispel that <coughs> myth completely. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I think. um you've got to respect your knees and you've got to, to look after them and you can damage them through running if you don't take care of them. But I think for most recreational runners who are, are running a little bit, it's, you know, there's so much evidence now that, that, that it can reduce your risk of needing joint replacements, not increase your risk of needing joint replacements. Mm. Um, and that actually, you know, strengthen your bones increase your um, flexibility and mobility reduce pain there's so much good evidence for for being active um being protective for your knees and really most knee problems like osteoarthritis the main influencing factor is your genetics Mm -hmm. it's in it's in your dna uh so we we really you know running does get a really bad name people assume oh it must be really bad for you to be pounding the pavements four times a week or whatever, but we really do need to get rid of that myth. And I'm sure most people listening to this podcast will will be kind of be a, will be aware of that and mm. hopefully reassured by that if they aren't feeling confident. I, I do find that um, there's a lot of people who have knee pain and mm. automatically think that they have a problem with their knees. But what I've learned over the years, particularly in my collaborations with the physios, is that often that knee pain is, is, is usually due to uh, the fact that the the knee has been pulled slightly out of position, the tracking's gone wrong because there's tightness. Now, the tightness is probably um, related to the running. There could be some tightness in the quad muscles that are just pulling the knee. And it's, you know, there's not a great deal of space between the, the various components of that structure. And if you pull one, one thing a little bit out of line, it can cause a little bit more pressure somewhere else. And that's the result of the pain. And actually, if you do a little bit more mobility, a little bit more flexibility training, maybe some foam rolling, um, 90% of the time you can dimin- uh, reduce those uh, those aches and pains. Absolutely, definitely. The tight tightness, like you mentioned, but also weaknesses as well. Uh, so simple things, thinking about ITB band as well, your iliotibial band, that that 
attaches down at the side of the knee, just below the kneecap. And mm. that can often, your pain, you feel like it's from the knee, but it's actually from the iliotibial band. So again, like you say, looking at muscle tightness, but muscle weaknesses like weak glutes. So it's, it's very, you know, it's very unusual for knee pain to be something um, that where the, where the results, where the, what I'm trying to say, where the actual solution is in the knee <laughs> um, mm. or need surgery or need something moving. It, it's much, much more common for it to be around the knee in some way, in, or even as high up as the hips. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I mentioned the three operations I've had. I've had two very, very good surgeons and because I'm in curious about this stuff and it's part of my job I'm always sort of probably wearing their wearing their patients down as I'm asking them this and that and the other but one thing I have been aware of is you know I guess the most likely problem with the knee is that you'll need some some sort of um you've got wear and tear in there and there's a problem with the cartilage but it's possible to carry on that's not a mechanical thing it's not like a cruciate ligament injury where that's going to reduce your stability and perhaps you might need to have it repaired although even today they they sort of don't um they don't favor surgery as often but certainly with cartilage um you can carry on um with a bit of cartilage floating around in there can't you it doesn't it's not necessary that you have to have surgery yeah i mean lots of knee problems aren't solved by by surgery and are by rehabilitation and, and strengthening around the knee so that the muscles around the knee are taking more of the impact um and absolutely there are plenty of athletes and and recreational runners who have had knee cartilage problems and carry on running i've got a good friend who was who was told that she wouldn't run again but she was determined and with really good physio she uh she did and a lot of hard work and, and patience and she still runs now so it's it's not always the uh end or end of the story There's, has there not been some um research into sham surgery where they pretended that they'd done some cartilage treatments on some people made it look like they had and gave them the incisions and everything, which I, I struggle to wonder how they got that through the ethics committee. But anyway, um, but actually those people then reported, well, my knee feels great now. And actually nothing had happened. It's the effect of placebo. I was listening to a webinar this this week about, and they mentioned about placebo. It was to do with drugs rather than surgery. But placebo has, in, has an incredible effect sometimes. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's in the mind, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, well, I think we've covered that one then. So okay. the, bo the bottom line is, I mean, if you want to find out whether knee, whether whether running's bad for your knees, there'll be a full answer in Juliet's book. But I, th I think I think that the uh, the bottom line is, it's better to run than not to run. And um, and if you've got oh, yeah. pain in your knees, it's uh, it, it, it's it's not because your knees are damaged. It's probably caused by tightness, which which you can correct with a little bit of um, attention to mobility. So. Um, I'm going to test you a bit more now, Juliet. Okay. What's what is the most unusual? And I'm sure there's been quite a few. So, what's the most unusual question you've been asked over the years? So, if it's if it's unusual, I haven't really put it in the book because uh, I was li limited for space in the book. So, I had to pick out the things that were very common or that were most likely for people to ask. So, very unusual ones aren't. Mm aren't in the book well it doesn't matter if it's not in the book it'll still okay. be good, good content for the podcast <laughs> i'm just trying to think now um we can come back to this one if you yeah, like yeah well let's come back to that one because I, i've got i've got the most the, uh, yeah let's come back to that one i'm, ter I'm terrible at these kind of quick fire <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not mastermind or anything there's no, no, prank I know. The end. There's no wrong answer is there I, I asked, I put this question down and I think, I think it might be one and the same, but to start with, I, I, 
I wrote down, which question do you wish people would ask you? And then I put in a different way, what are we not asking that we should be asking? And I, I think they might be the same things. Um, I think I think I probably could give you different ones for both, actually, because the one I okay. wish that the wish that people would ask me about is is probably because I feel quite interested about it <laughs> and, and want to, to sort of share knowledge and and that is really how running can have an impact on our intelligence because oh. I think one of the one of the things that I've learned over the years is how much running is useful for my work mm. and how I can use running to make me more productive to concentrate better to 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 remember things better to be more focused and and I really you know when you're doing something like writing a book you have to really dig down and and and, and <coughs> avoid distractions and and it's really really hard work it's really draining and I really credit running with the ability to for me to actually be able to do that and I'm quite fascinated by how exercise in general um, but particularly running obviously has effects in the brain that make you not just more intelligent that's maybe not that that's the question that's in the book but actually make you more able to carry out your work so that's one I, I wish people would ask me about because I like to talk about it and I find it very fascinating okay I'm going to give you a chance to talk about it now then um tell us a little bit about what you've learned about how it's impacted you then um yeah so I think when you look at the sort of science behind it and what's going on in the brain, we all, we've all heard about endorphins and how when you run, they make you feel good. And those kind of factors definitely can make you more able to concentrate when you get back. We all know you do some exercise and then, then you can settle down better to, to work. But to me, the other side of it as well, that, that is still very under-researched and mostly only researched in mice, is the to do with neurogenesis and building new nerve cells because we all have this belief don't we that we were born with this infinite number of nerve cells and then actually as we as we age they just disappear but actually we are making new nerve cells all the time uh-huh. neurogenesis the word the word is called um and if an exercise we think exercise stimulates neurogenesis so studies that they've done on mice looking at different areas of the brain and the blood flow in those areas of brain they do believe that exercise helps you build new nerve cells but one thing that i found particularly interesting was that if you don't use those nerve cells then you quickly lose them mm-hmm. so if you're not doing anything mentally stimulating to make use of them then they disappear so if you can combine exercise with activities that stimulate your brain then you could be getting a double whammy because not only you're creating the nerve cells but you're actually holding on to them as well so a very good example of that might be learning a tricky drill mastering a new sort of technique when you're running potentially listening to things when you're running if you're wanting to 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 learn so listening to audiobooks etc or very quickly when you come back settling into some very very difficult work um and and this is a it is an area of of research but i think it's something that as runners we could be tapping into really and getting a lot more benefit from how we actually use our running to to improve our brain health that's that's really interesting uh i'd not i'd not thought about it like that 
definitely think that you know mastering a drill i, I like I, I use the word mastering and mastering the process and do you think meditation would help then um you know I, i've over the last 12 months really enjoyed running through the woods and listening to the birds and following the advice of a um a well-known running coach and triathlon coach, Malcolm Brown, who talked about relishing the process of running, just just listening to the the the, the woodland underneath your feet crackling and breaking, listening to the birds, you know, finding paths through the trees. So you're constantly having to process where you're going rather than just running in a straight line. Uh, but I I prefer not to listen to things while I'm um, I prefer not to have artificial things in my ears when I'm running. Um, yeah, I, I'm the same. I never I never. I never run with music, audio, headphones, nothing, because I do enjoy that. But I think I use my running in different ways. So, and I mentioned this in the book as well about mindful running, but mm. about about productive running as well. So, yes, definitely using some runs for just like you say, being present, being aware, noticing what's around you, and that in itself is very therapeutic. But every now and then, I will use a run as a productive run, where I will try and solve a problem. So I'll decide what that problem is before I go out. So it may be, and maybe I should have gone for a run and, and thought about these questions. <laughs> but I've done it for like creating a presentation. I've gone out and thought I need to create this presentation. Um, and also this is very time efficient if you're a busy person as well. And we know people are more creative when they're on the move. So it's a perfect way to mix running and working, but solving a particular problem while you're running as well, because you can, as I say, be more creative and, and come up with ideas. So, yeah. We... There'll be a fair percentage of triathletes listening to this. So we, we don't just have to um, reserve that process for running, do we? We could do that no, while we're no. out cycling or swimming. And, and one of the things that I like to do when I'm swimming particularly is I don't use a watch, but I do, if I'm doing particular sets where I have times, I like to try and calculate, right, if I'm setting off at this time on the clock, I'm doing little maths, right? I need to, if I finish on that time, that's going to mean I've swum this time and then I've got 10 seconds rest. So I'm constantly working with the numbers and remembering those set times. So if somebody said to me, how how do you remember all that stuff without without wearing one of these in the pool? I could, I think I could remember, well, I know I've remembered 3,100 times, okay, that I've swum in an hour-long set um, when I get home. Wow. And, uh, there's there's a trick to this because most of them are within a small band. I know mm -hmm. that I'll be swimming, I'll be hitting the wall within two seconds either way of the, my target time. So actually, I don't have to remember a huge range. They're not all different. And the majority of them will be probably the same with one or two that are slightly slower and one or two that are slightly larger. But I do, I do think the fact that I'm engaged in that all the time and thinking about my strokes and the clock and everything else is, is helps with that memory thing. I mean, it's definitely a, a type of meditation. You are focusing on one thing and all distractions mm. are going. And that, I mean, I, I, I'm in awe of that because I can't even remember how many lengths I go. Is that 21 or is that 22? Well, that in <laughs> itself is a problem, isn't it? Trying to solve that. But those, those, um, those kind of activities, yeah, definitely. And, and I think perhaps we don't really realise maybe the power of our sport in whatever our sport be in, in terms of our brain power. I, I had some uh, conversations a few years ago with a cyclist who was doing these ultra long distance races. And I said to him, how do you, how do you just stay focused for 24 hours? And he said, oh, well, I'm constantly doing sums in my head. I know where my next checkpoint is and I'm looking at the speed I'm going at and I'm thinking about the course and thinking, right. So 
um, if I'm going to be riding at this pace, then that's so many minutes per mile or mm. so many miles an hour. And therefore I'm going to arrive at this village in that time. And so he was, he was a, it, it was to let his support staff know when, when he was going to arrive, but also his own little game, right? I think I'm going to be that, that village is five miles away and I'm currently traveling at 22 miles an hour. And so that's four minutes, you know, however many minutes. Yeah. I wonder how close I'll be to my estimate when I arrive at that village. And he would constantly play games like that to a keep his mind occupied, b just just stay focused on something and and keep him off the boredom. Because you know, over twenty four hours, you do go through ups mm. and downs in ability to focus. And that just distraction distraction techniques to help you with your endurance is is well practiced as well, isn't it? Um, what about how exercise? influences sleep and therefore the ability to get REM sleep which we know helps to so has the restorative um, function for the brain um, is there is there a link there as well in terms of your learning um, yeah I do talk a little bit about sleep as well and I think it's 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 hugely underrated but I, I'm always <laughs> I'm always very aware when I'm writing about it that it isn't easy for some people. <laughs> you know, I sleep well, uh, apart from the dog and um, in years gone by with the small children. But I know I'm really lucky in that because I do know there are so many people that that struggle with their sleep. Whereas as athletes, we're always told, you know, you need to make sure you get enough sleep because it's when you sleep and your body's restorative, uh, restoring itself. And uh, the lack, we know sleep deprivation has effects on performance, but sometimes it's always very easy to say, but hard to actually do isn't it um so i'm always very very aware of that when i'm when i'm writing to mm. to try and be helpful in terms of what will help sleep although again everybody's heard those things a million times but actually just trying to look maybe at the bigger picture about what's going on in life that might be affecting your sleep as well yeah no you're absolutely right we um we do quite a lot on sleep and certainly with the people I'm dealing with and maybe they're a they're a sort of privileged subset if you like because I guess the you, you, a lot of what happens in your life is a product of your environment and if you're living in an environment where you mm -hmm. know sleep is disturbed if you live in an inner city area where there's lots going on all the time um, and you don't have the ability to shut that out then I, I do appreciate that that affects your sleep but equally there's a lot of things that we can do with our sleep mm -hmm. that we're not doing you know where we can take action and take control you know Netflix and 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 um Amazon Prime and all of those things, uh, you know, we need to learn to press the off button um, in uh, YouTube and uh, Facebook. We can put those down. We can put telephones down, you know, fairly early. So there's, there's a, there are a lot of things we can do ourselves to improve. Even if we can't get more sleep, we could perhaps improve the quality of the sleep we have in that time um, by Definitely. being a bit, by you mentioned that word earlier about being a, being a bit more mindful of our own sort of um, routines and habits. Yeah, and it's often chronic sleep debt that causes the problems. You know, it's just a little bit short of enough on a long-term basis. Mm. And it sometimes doesn't take much to actually get yourself half an hour more a night by using those some of those techniques and things that you that you say and making it a priority, I think, just understanding how important it is is the first step. Well, I'm fully I'm hundred percent with you on that thing that it's it's probably the most underrated tool we have you know there's there's all sorts of gadgets that we can use that might help our running a little bit but there's one that's free um, <laughs> which we can have and and, and yet we overlook that when i'm going to buy a new watch because that's going to help me run a little bit faster now get some more sleep first yes all right well I, I asked you two questions there and you said you felt like that they were you could give me different answers so what are we not asking that we should be asking well i think that probably ties into what we're saying about sleep really because my my 
chapter one of the whole chapters in the book is called, is about self-care and it really is just encouraging people to look at what is going on in the rest of their life and getting a nice balance between their sport and their daily life but you know often when performances are dipping or things aren't going well thinking about the bigger picture because the fact that you're a bit stressed at work or the fact that like you say you aren't getting enough sleep can have such a huge impact but equally it can go the other way as well you know you can become so absorbed and really push yourself in your training that then the other areas of your life sort of suffer so that that chapter chapter nine is all really about look how to look after our body and how to get that balancing act better and to not forget about the other factors in our life that we do have control over so some things we don't but the, the little things that we can do in taking control in those other areas of our life to give us a better outcome and make sport more enjoyable, but also the other way around as well. Mm. Yeah. The big picture, it, it's, it's easy, isn't it really to put everything into a little silo and think it operates in, in, in sort of isolation from all of those other things. But of course, as you've, as you've mentioned there, it, that, that doesn't happen. You know, everything we do in our life affects everything else we do. Um, I've had debate with some people who say, yeah, I don't believe this thing about balance. It's impossible. But I'm not sure I agree because if I was to challenge you to stand on one leg now, you'd find a sweet spot where you could stand on one leg for 20, 30 seconds, and then you would lose your balance. And so you're trying to get back to that point where you can stand on one leg. So I think balance does exist, but I don't think it's permanent. And I think being mindful of when we're in balance and when we're off balance is is the key to all of that. Yes, although I do think a bit of imbalance is okay. So, for example, when you are training for um I'm, I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of um I'm trying to not just talk about running because I'm, <laughs> I'm so conscious but I would just say if, you, if you're training say you're training for a marathon or whatever and you've got a 16-week training plan there is no doubt that mm. balance in your life for that period of time is going to switch yes. more to your marathon or you're writing a book um and there's going to be six nine twelve months of your life when that is your main focus so things that are going to go out of balance because your priorities are going to have mm. to change so I think it is just being being aware that imbalance is is fine but just being prepared for that and adjusting the other things in the life to to, in your life to take account of that because Mm -hmm. like you say there is a sweet spot but how long can you actually maintain that for you know not very long but so if there is imbalance accepting that's what it is and that you're going to have to put most of your attention in that area for a short period of time and the other things will suffer but Mm -hmm. what can you do to minimize the amount that they suffer yeah, so I think the bottom line there is the mindfulness, isn't it? It is awareness of what mm-hmm. what, are the, what what things are suffering. And we, we talk in, in triathlon about, you know, preparing for an Ironman, for instance, which is a huge task. It does take over your life. Is is taking out a goodwill loan. And like any loan, you have to pay it back at the end. So when you have that period after your race, when you're perhaps not doing as much training, that's when you have to pay a bit more attention to your family or um, to your work colleagues who've, who've, who've carried the load for you for the last few months. Definitely, definitely. You must get some questions that make you laugh. Can you, can you think of any? Um, well, I'll tell you what did make me laugh was, was one of the comments about uh, about the book, and that was from um, Catherine Switzer. So uh, I'm sure everyone's heard of Catherine Switzer, the the, uh, the 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 lady in 1967 Boston Marathon who was pushed off the course because she was a woman. Ah, um, okay. And so she was wearing bib number 261, which is where our 261 Fearless 
running network comes from. It was founded by Catherine Switzer. Um, she's an incredible woman and a, a big support and, and role model to me. And she kindly reread my book as so she could give me an endorsement for it. And she 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 wrote something on Instagram the other day about and 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 put a picture of her with the book and said, "Of course, I read all the bits about sex first. Um, and she's uh, she's 70, 74 now. Um, and I just love her sort of attitude. And she said she she laughed out loud at some of the at some of the bits about sex and running. So I suppose, yes, it's not always a funny subject, but it, it one of the things in the book that made me laugh was trying to to figure out and research whether sex the night before a race will help your performance <laughs> or whether or whether you're better to abstain. Um, and the concept that the study in women shows that orgasms can reduce your pain threshold, but they're not sure how long that pain threshold will be reduced for. But the concept that actually a pre-race orgasm might reduce your pain threshold and allow you to perform better if you're in a, a sport where you're going to be pushing the pain barrier. So I was, <laughs> I was just kind of reading it thinking okay how's that I'm gonna sorry, work I'm then? A, i think i'm a bit confused there if it lowered your pain threshold then you sorry, feel increased pain. increased your pain threshold sorry right sorry. okay right now so, i've got it yeah, okay yeah, well that's yeah, all, yeah, yeah well yeah. that's all right for the ladies what about the guys what, <laughs> well, what's, what's the a... research on where the sex is good for them the night before um uh, well same I, I think the same is the same for men I and mean, the thing is most of the studies have been done in men um so there isn't much evidence and, and research done for women but you know and traditionally people thought that you know uh, not allowing sex would actually increase mm. competitiveness and perhaps aggression and therefore inc- increase performance but the, the any studies that they are fairly shaky and i think at the end of the day there are people that would argue completely the other way that actually makes them feel more relaxed makes them feel calmer and actually, they then perform better. But obviously, you know, if you're up all night the night before your endurance <laughs> race, it's not going to help you. Well, um, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I would think that most people the night before their big race don't sleep that well anyway. I, I, well, I, seem, I, I seem to recall Stephen Redgraves said in his books that before his Olympic events, he didn't really sleep at all. And so he knew he wasn't going to sleep. So he would just go for a walk and he would read his book. And But, he, but what he did know was that if he was getting good sleep in the other days previous yes. to that, that, that one night doesn't really matter. But if it's an endurance event and you're burning burning calories through the night the night before, then it's not really good. Wow. If you've got that much endurance, then <laughs> burning that much calories, good luck to you. So there you um, go. Questions you, that make me laugh. The, the, last, the last podcast we did was all about the menopause, if you remember. And um, shortly after your, um, your podcast, I was um, speaking with this lady. She was a OBGYN. So gynecologist as they're called yeah. in um gyn in, in the us yeah she'd lost over 100 pounds um but we so we were talking about her personal story um but we also touched on the menopause and other things and and she was talking about uh, um she she touched on the on, on the subject of sex and she came out with this astounding quote that said if you're not enjoying the best sex of your life in your 50s then there's something going wrong ladies get a grip <laughs> good for her yeah i'm not 50 yet but i'll let you know <laughs> well you've got something to look forward to then you talked about uh, before we started the podcast you you talked about um research um, are there any questions that 
had you scratching your head where you had to do, you know, I guess there's a lot of stuff that in your career as a GP and as a runner, the answers would come, you know, running off your tongue fairly quickly. But are, are there mm. some questions that caused you to have to do a, an awful lot of research and maybe surprised you? I think I'm so much more used to writing about women's health and I was really keen that this would cover men as a bit, you know it'd be a very equal book and it would cover men's health topics as well and and that was very intentional because I'm we know that men are much less likely to go to the doctor in the first place and it's been quite interesting to to see the people that the book is helping and to get reviews from people and a lot of the really positive feedback has come from men who perhaps don't have as many sources of information for health information as as women do Mm. so I I I, because I mean as a GP when I was a GP yes I saw men's health things all the time but I still had a larger percentage of my work to do with women and when I was writing for women's running then most of the questions I was answering were not always for women specific but I, I knew I needed to learn more about men's health so the questions that I sort of spent longer time researching were definitely male related things like fertility and sperm count and prostate problems because I thought I knew the answers but I needed to make sure that my my thoughts were right and and get back to sort of reading some of the the papers and things about those so I intentionally worked quite hard on on those areas to make sure that my advice was as good as it could be going back to what that first question about running and damaging your knees and then and then looping back to what what you just talked about about um, prostate problems and uh, fertility is there any is there any situation in which running will be bad for you in terms of your long-term health that's a good question. I mean, I think there are people who can't run. And when I say can't, I mean shouldn't or have been advised not to run. And most of those, I think, are pretty obvious in terms of having long-term conditions where running perhaps causes an increased amount of pain. So they're not able to to, to enjoy the running. If they've got particular um, if they've got severe, severe cases of things like osteoporosis, I mean, in in mild osteoporosis, yes, that you know, running is usually advised, and weight bearing, ex and high impact exercise can be very helpful in increasing bone mass. But you do get to the point in some people where actually high impact activities can be can mm. be potentially harmful. So, I mean, I think for them, for the majority of people. it's fine. And I think some people do get put off running. But if you think about things like lung disease, so for example, COPD, you may have heard of that chronic obstructive Mm. pulmonary disease. And we know know, people get worried because they think, well, I'm going to get more out of breath when I exercise. So therefore it can't be good for me. But Mm. actually studies show that people who do exercise regularly can have fewer infections and fewer hospital admissions Mm -hmm. and for some people that may be that may be running you know if if they've built up gradually and they're able to to run albeit maybe more slowly than they used to but so it's rare really that running is completely out of the question and but I think if a doctor advises you that you should stop running then you really need to ask the question why and and take that very seriously and and get the background sort of behind it really Springs to mind that, that hip replacements are one area where people are advised not to run. But mm. uh, a friend of mine had had a hip replacement, and the surgeon who did her surgery said, actually, 
most of the people have hip replacements are in their 60s or 70s and they probably weren't runners to start with. So we actually don't have a great body of evidence to show that um, running, if you've had a hip replacement, is actually bad for you. It's just a, an intuition that it probably isn't good. Have you, have you any thoughts or experience on that? I've not so much experience on, on hips, but uh, definitely with knees. And I know lots of people who have knee replacements are advised not to run. And one of those is Roger Robinson. If you've heard of Roger Robinson, he wrote, he wrote an amazing book, When Running Made History. Um, he's an incredible writer generally about, about running. And he had two knee replacements. And he said it wasn't so much that he he knew he shouldn't run. It's just that he forgot. <laughs> he forgot that he maybe shouldn't be running and decided, oh, well, I'll just have a little try. And has got back to you know, really great age rankings for, for his sport. So, you know, it, it shows everybody's different, everybody's individual, but sometimes I think we have maybe created barriers that we don't have mm. the evidence for. And we all, you know, this N equals one, we're all our own experiment, right? You know, you can try it. You'll get, you'll get, you'll get some feedback from your body fairly quickly on whether it's good for you. And, um, you know, when you start, won't you? So if you're listening to your body, you'll probably get a good idea of what's right and what's not. Yeah. And I think always just feel empowered to ask the questions to your specialist, you know, when mm -hmm. they say don't, well, say, well, why? And, you know, what evidence is there for that? And um, what will happen if I do? And and so that you really feel, because if someone was going to tell me not to run, they would have to have a really good reason um, mm. because of the mental health benefits that it gives me as well as the physical. So I think always, always ask the question and, and don't be don't be afraid. And as a population on the whole, whether it's in the UK or worldwide, for the majority of population, we we fall seriously below. I mean, you and I are talking to quite an elite community of people that do exercise mm. regularly and probably meet the recommendations from the various different health organisations of of sort of weekly levels of vigorous exercise. But uh, in general, we fall woefully below that recommendation, don't we? Four to five days a week at 30 to 45 minutes of vigorous exercise. Most people aren't getting anywhere near that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's shocking, really, as a country. And one of the roles I, I had for about three years was as a clinical champion for physical activity for Public Health England. And uh, a lot of the presentations that we gave covered all exactly that us as a nation, why we don't do enough and how far short of the chief medical officer's guidelines we actually fall. And there are numerous, numerous, multiple complex reasons why we don't. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, we were we were presenting to healthcare professionals to empower them to be able to have conversations with their patients, because we know that if somebody is advised by a healthcare professional to be more active, then they are quite likely to take that advice. And healthcare professionals, as I mentioned right at the very beginning, you know, often don't have any training mm. in that. Well, I certainly didn't. And it's not because they don't want to. Yes, time's time is pressured but even just a very quick sentence a very quick one-off comment can sow a little seed and give patient permission to do some kind of exercise so I think it, there's a lot to take into account there's a lot to take into account about our communities and our environments and how easy it is to be active in our daily lives but I do think that it's becoming more of a priority nationally especially with COVID-19 you know one of the things we could do we were told we should do was good for us was to exercise you know we had one reason to leave the house and I think yes a lot of people became less active through lockdown but there were an awful lot of people who became more active or at least appreciated mm -hmm. how much activity could play an important role in their lives so I feel quite positive about it and I feel quite um 
sort of evangelical generally about trying to <laughs> get inactive people more active because they're the people that have got the most to gain. I'm right by the Leeds Liverpool Canal here. I was very, very pleased and happy to see the, the, the increase in the number of people out walking. Still now, probably not as much as it was this time last year, but definitely a, a huge increase in what it used to be in people that I see running, people I see walking, couple mm. p- people in, in pairs, you know, not just uh, uh, sort of like a household couple, but two friends out walking because that was their opportunity to catch up as well, wasn't it? The, being able to exercise with one other person. Um, but of course, I, I know we're talking about running, but, but you don't have to run to get fit. I mean, you can walk and get pretty much the same physical benefits. It's not the high impact, perhaps, but but then maybe if you are worried about your hips or your knees, br- brisk, vigorous walking is just as good. It's wonderful. And like sleep, it's hugely underrated. And people think, oh, well, I, I, I can't run. but I'll, And they think of walking as a, as a real second-class activity, but it's not, and it's so convenient, and you can do it anywhere, and you can just literally choose to walk a bit faster and that can make a massive difference Mm. to to your physical fitness definitely I'm a big advocate for walking I I know a lot of people say this whole thing about 10,000 steps a day you know there's no background to it there's no evidence um you know about whether it's useful or not for me if it's a target that encourages people to get moving a bit more and that's at the that's really the foundation of all this is is that people don't move enough um if, if we can just get people moving more, if even if they're just pottering around, having a target of something like 10,000 steps a day, one before they were doing 5,000, would be a huge starting point. Absolutely, definitely. For two reasons. One, you're spending less time being sedentary, which we know is harmful to your health. And secondly, you, you're doing some form of activity, whether it be light or moderate or even vigorous activity. And light activity is quite interesting in terms of um, more research now looking at the benefits of, of doing light stuff, like you say, just light walking as, as, uh, as an intervention. And because anybody can do that. And we, we do, you know, we do know that if we can get people up and moving and out of their chairs and even if it is just pottering around, it has huge health benefits, particularly in terms of things like type 2 diabetes. When you're sitting down a lot of the time, more after about 20 minutes or so, your metabolism starts to change and your body starts to hold on to, mm-hmm. to fat. So anything that we can do to get us up and, and moving is, is, is great. I can't remember what it was. I, uh, I listened to a podcast where they talked about um, movement and sitting and using stand-up desks. And there, there are some... Um, there are some hormones in the blood that transport cholesterol around that, that's, that stop functioning after about an hour, which is one of the reasons why you need to keep getting up regularly and just moving. Um, there are some other, there's some other research there about postprandial exercise, even if mm-hmm. a, a very light walk for 10 minutes uh, at, you know, one, one mile an hour. So just going for a stroll around your neighborhood or your garden um, helps after you've had a meal. And then there is a phenomenon. I'm not sure if you've come across this. It was it was some some research they did in Australia called the active couch potatoes. Have you heard of that one? Um, well, uh, yes, in the sense that that you can you can't binge exercise. You know, if you do your exercise, mm. say you do your park run, um, hopefully soon, um, in on a Saturday morning, and then you spend the rest of the weekend watching Netflix. Unfortunately, the the 5K isn't going to counteract the rest of your sedentary mm. time that sedentary time is like an independent risk factor mm. so you yeah you can be an exercising couch potato <laughs> yeah we we talked about it as in the the you know the more active 
uh, triathletes, for instance, that would go training for work. They go for an hour's run or they go to the pool and then they go and sit at the desk all day. But they probably um, sort of feel like they've got some sort of moral superiority over their sedentary colleagues who just pot around the office. But actually, the research shows that those sedentary colleagues who just potter between the coffee machine and the, and the bathroom are actually far better off in terms of their health than the people who vigorously exercise one hour a day first thing in the morning. It's, it's scary, isn't it? And, and I think it's not widely known. And I, I think it's a really good good message to, it's just simply a case of moving more. But I think it's so easy to spend a lot of time sitting. I'm sitting now while I'm recording this. Um, I quite often stand for for Zoom calls when I can. You're standing up, I think, aren't you? I just yeah, 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 I have a, yeah, yeah. a stand-up desk. And mm. uh, actually, I, I, I managed to get a... Uh, an anti-fatigue mat it's like memory foam it's about a centimeter thick uh which means that i can now stand at this pretty much all day but i have found that, that there's a difference yeah because your feet don't get your feet and your, your knees and hips don't get as fatigued so mm-hmm. but what i have also found and, and this is through conversations with some of my other podcast guests is that if i want to sit down um that's fine and there are certain tasks that are better done sitting down than standing up so emails and calls like this are great standing up and i'd encourage everybody when they have a phone call to stand and just pot again pot around you don't need to yeah. do it sitting in your armchair um if i'm watching the telly i don't use my sofa or my armchair now i sit on my yoga mat and sit yeah. cross-legged i lie on my back with um and just do some hip stretches so i, I guess i could get rid of my um, chairs now although I don't think so any of my guests would be too happy about having to join me on the floor um brilliant but, ju- but brilliant. just but just moving around more and changing positions so I'll spend a bit of time kneeling on the floor sitting on my heels doing some work and then I'll sit down to do a different task and I'll plan that out in the day when I've if I've got to write an article then I will sit down and I'll do that but I have a little timer on my phone and so I get up after 45 minutes in case I get engrossed and just have a walk around or I've got, I've got my kettlebells here so I'll do some kettlebell swings for a minute I'm, I'm fully engaged in that whole sort you of are. Um, uh, yeah trying to try so I was going to say I think I think what the important thing that you're making there is is two things number one it's a habit so that you know you get used to it but also I think that the the fact is that even though it's only maybe 5 10 15 minutes of sitting you think it doesn't count but when you add up that every day for every week for every month for every year that's when then that's when you start to see the big big differences and we used to say this to the gps and the nurses when they were calling patients in we would say do you use your intercom to call them in and i would say probably Mm. around the northwest i would say in those rooms probably 75 percent of the staff were using the intercom to call a patient in and the other 25 were getting up going to the waiting room to call the patient in. And although it might not seem like anything, when you're working 8, 10, 12 hours a day, say four days a week for 40 years, uh, that getting up in between every patient has a huge impact on your potential health. So it's those little things, I think, that make the difference. Mm. And they might just seem trivial at the time, but when you add them up, that's when you get the big numbers. Well, there's another thing that I've tried over the last few years um, is uh, obviously not been able to, not needed to do it as much, is um, I take my kettlebell with me now when I go on a long journey. I have it in the back of the car. And when I stop um, and mm-hmm. I try, you know, you see the signs on the motorway saying tiredness kills. So I try to stop every couple of hours and I park in the furthest part of the car park. Yeah. So this, so that makes me walk further if I'm going to the bathroom yeah. or, or going yeah. to get a cup of tea. But also I'm less disturbed. So I get my kettlebell out and I do a little two minute routine 
just Brilliant. to get just to get the muscles working I, I cover a full body routine making sure i've got some squats in there and stretching a little bit and then it goes back in the car but it's there all the time now and i thought i was being i thought i was slightly strange and i've, I've had some i've had some interesting looks i've had people tooting and waving i've had people just looking at me like i've beamed <laughs> down from mars but but also i've had people coming up and asking me and saying oh that's a good idea um, and as i started to read around i I found there was one guy who used to take his kettlebells everywhere. So he'd actually check them in on his airline flights and have to wait for them to come off the carousel. Um, so I'm not alone in this uh, strange habit. What an amazing example to all of us. <laughs> but well, if that was normal, it would be normal and nobody would think twice, would they, if, no. if, more, if more people were doing it? Mm. And I think some some habits are becoming much more normal. You know, I, I remember years gone by, you'd see somebody doing press-ups on a bench in the park and you'd think they were odd. Mm. Whereas now it's like, oh, good for them. And and yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go too. So I think we are changing some tides, mm. but still a lot more to do. All right. Um, the most unusual question. I gave you a little bit of time. Have you come up with anything? <laughs> um, no, I haven't really. Um, I suppose unusual things are often very personal things. Um, people, uh, okay, so a, a woman saying to me, is it okay well, I remember a patient who had been for a run and then came for her cervical smear. And I remember doing the cervical smear and her saying, Oh, I knew you were a runner and I knew you wouldn't I knew you wouldn't mind. Um, and I remember then somebody else saying to me, Do you think it's all right to go for a run and then turn up for um an intimate examination? <laughs> um and I just thought, well, I don't know really. I don't think I would do that as as the doctor, because you know, you get really sweaty and smelly and then you're sorry, we've gone from sex to vaginas it's just it's just my it's just my life um, <laughs> you're the um, first person that's ever used that word in full on the on the podcast oh, Julia. Well, Thank you. i'm proud of that i'm proud of that we need to we need to normalize that a bit more um and and again i thought well yes i'm all for encouraging people to 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 exercise and in the book i do have a question is it okay to run after my cervical smear you know is it okay to have your smear and then immediately run but i suppose the other question is is it okay to to, to run to my cervical smear um, appointment ah, I'll I, leave, see. Right. I leave that I leave that up to the individual to decide whether they think that's appropriate or not mm. um, for the doctor on the other side or the nurse on the other <laughs> side of it <laughs> uh, are there any are there any questions that make you angry or sad I don't think I would ever feel angry about a question because I think that goes along with the no question is a silly question mm. I suppose in terms of sadness questions where which are linked to an unfortunate event so can I run after or how quick how soon can I run after I've had a miscarriage mm. or my dad died from a heart attack suddenly um should, am I okay to go running those sort of ones that are linked to sort of personal personal events really that that I'm glad people ask them and, and in a way I wish more people would ask them but they do they just mm. make you think ah. Oh, that's that's tough I'm, I'm glad I'm not that in, situ in that situation but usually running can help a little bit you know because running is very good for helping through life events we've talked we going back to the um questions about running in your knees and talking about um uh, having surgery um do, do you get many questions where people ask how quickly they can return to running after they've had surgery or an, an anesthetic yeah, after surgery, um, after injury as well, really. Um, and I think those are the kind of questions in terms of surgery, it's really hard to get the answers. Mm. Because, you know, if you Google that, you will get a million 
different a million different yeah. things and you'll get people who who went out the next day and said they were fine and you'll get people who said that they couldn't do it for six weeks and I think my biggest my biggest tip is really it might not be the last the first thing on your mind but actually to ask your surgeon even before the surgery mm-hmm. because after the surgery you you're often a bit bleary eyed because you you know you get out of hospital pretty quickly after some of these particularly minor procedures mm. um, um and you may there may not be space for that conversation that there might be it might be very busy or you just plainly plainly forget so my top tip will be to ask beforehand and i think a, a really good source is somebody like a physiotherapist as well if you've mm. got something in particular particularly if it's a musculoskeletal surgery that you've had rehab it makes so much difference prehab can help as well so mm. exercises that you do before the surgery so maybe thinking about those things before you have any kind of operation if you can obviously some things are emergency but those are often the diff- most difficult questions to get a good answer to even sometimes from the doctors themselves because it is a very individual thing but some kind of guidance as to when you can restart I mean, getting up and walking and moving around is generally a good thing as quickly as possible after any operation, but actually high impact exercise. When is it safe to do that? And very, very much depends on what you've had done. Mm. Yeah, well, that does come back to one of the first principles of exercise, doesn't it? About everybody's an individual. So, yeah. you know, gender, age, environment, history, all those other things. I mean, that those are the questions that sort of do make me, I'm not sure if I would say I would be angry, but um, on on my triathlon, um, Facebook forum when people have had an operation or they've had a serious illness and they're saying I've got I've got a race coming up soon you know what are people's thoughts on I've just had a heart attack or I've just been <laughs> diagnosed with AFib you know and uh, or um, uh, what people's thoughts on doing an Ironman in four weeks time I so want to do this race and I'm like you know you've got you've got a medical expert who you would have been treated by. Why are you asking a forum where nobody knows your situation? Nobody knows anything about you. And you will get somebody who said, well, I did an Ironman the week after a heart attack and I was fine. Well, great. They were fine. You know, they might've been a bit stupid as well, but yeah, definitely don't ask Facebook. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the thing I would say. It depends what you're asking, doesn't it? And, and, you know, because some of the forums you, you, runners will want to help each other and they do sometimes give people ideas for things that they can can try but like you say you have got to be very careful about what you're asking and and like you say if you ask enough people you'll get the answer you want mm. to hear <laughs> are there any questions that you hope you never get asked well again i guess things related to the ones that make me sad <laughs> but then i want people to ask them because i want them to get the, the help that they need um I don't I don't really like being asked stuff about diet if I'm honest. Um you know what's the best diet for a runner? And that is that is in the book that exact question what's the best diet for a runner? Because people want you to come up with well you should go plant-based, low carb, whatever. Oh, yeah. Um and or you know and so really I it's not that I dodged that question in the book. I just wanted to make the point that it's a very personal thing. Again, it's a very individual thing. And I don't feel any right to be able to tell you, you know, what you what you should choose. And if you've got a diet which works for you, which gives you enough fuel to fuel your exercise, which you're healthy on, which is sits environmentally right with your conscience, um, then that's that's great, you know. Um oh. yeah. I mean I, I Yeah. I'm not a dietitian, so that's no. another reason I don't want to be. I don't, you know, and I'm always happy to to say this is my le- my area of expertise or not, but I don't I don't feel that I should be giving telling people what to, to eat. 
we we had another guest on um Dr. Tommy Wood is an English guy. He's based in the US. He was part of a company called Nourish Balance Thrive. And he's a sage, wise owl like yourself. And um, he says exactly the same as you. Look, you know, if it's working for you, why would I try to convince you to do anything different? I mean, I think perhaps we are starting to realize that keto isn't necessarily the best um, option for somebody doing an endurance activity however if you found that keto works for you because of other things in your life then fine carry on you know equally if mcdonald's eating mcdonald's and drinking coca-cola all the time is working for you currently then you know it might not be the best option long term but if you find <laughs> it works for you yeah i think um, if you if you find your diet isn't working for whatever reason um and it, that may be that you're looking for performance gains etc then then yeah. sure yeah get some good advice and and figure out what's going to be but as a blanket um what's the best diet for a runner i don't think there is uh, there is an answer and i certainly shouldn't be telling people what to consume <laughs> well, you, you know, within reason <laughs> have have you ever had anybody ask you about performance enhancing drugs um, no, not directly. I suppose because I don't train high level athletes, mm. really, uh, much more lower, lower level recreational. Um, I have looked stuff up for family members that are using a medication to, to see whether, uh, there's going to be sort of any, any issue with that. And I think, um, I went to a webinar this week actually about sports supplements and, mm. um, the 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 nandrolone talking about nandrolone which is very topical at the moment because oh the, yeah with the, the, runner, american, runner, the american runner yeah, yeah um he's just been disqualified and it was very very it was it was very very interesting and and i think it is i think it's something that people need to become more aware of how we how easy it can be to take something without actually realizing that it is a banned substance uh, particularly if you're buying it in another country <laughs> that that whole um argument about uh, tainted beef was used by alberto contador a few years ago in in cycling and i know that british triathlon um put round a memo to all of the elite athletes if they were competing in mexico or china they had to be very they had to be very very careful about eating meat because of the way that yep. they um use those sorts of drugs on the animals however i think you know you've eaten the burrito so the, the amount of meat that's in a burrito is quite small um how much how much nandrolone would need to be in there for it to then have a significant impact on your metabolism is uh, I'm not, I'm not sure but it seems yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's it seems like it's a hugely far fetched um uh, argument really well i thought that until i listened to this webinar <laughs> right okay which actually particularly for nandrolone they, they were showing that it doesn't need to be very much um i don't have the, the stats in front of me so i i, I wouldn't want to mi misquote it but it did make me when previously I would have just said, ah, you know, um, cheats are cheats. And, and, you know, it didn't actually think, oh, actually, okay, well, but at the same side of things, if you're an elite athlete, you would be, I would have thought, super aware about what you're consuming and, and street food is going to have its its risks. I would have, I would have thought, so I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to judge. And I, and I can only hope and assume that every bit of evidence was taken into account and the conclusion mm was come to with great thought because <laughs> it's hugely impactful on an individual's career and life isn't it it is but but you know having worked a bit in elite sport i know that they're mm. you know they the the steps they, that the authorities the, the governing bodies take to educate athletes about choices regarding supplements you know making sure that you've got the the um the stamp 
uh, mm. of credibility, you know, that it's got to have been, been through. I can't remember what the, um, what the, the website is now. Is it clean sport or something? Um, that you can go to to check things. There are certain companies now that are credible that you can get a certificate of authentication from about about what you're trying. You know, the, the, the athletes have got to prove that they've taken every step as well to be mindful, haven't they? You know, and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, very difficult. Well, Julia, is there anything else we need to cover today? <laughs> I think we've um, covered quite a lot of uh, <laughs> quite a lot. We have, of haven't areas. we? <laughs> yeah. I think I made you blush. Maybe I'm the first first guest to make you make you blush <laughs> oh, using the vagina word didn't make me blush i was just, was just giggling that, that, that you were the first person to have um to have talked about it i'll have to go back through the previous 203 episodes now and, and do a word and i check. think i might have said it in the menopause one ah oh uh, okay yeah. right I, and i might have said you're the first person to use that as well so i'll, I'll go back and check the transcript great well look um Run Well, Essential Health Q&As for Runners. Hopefully the, the listeners have got a flavour of that book now. Where can they get hold of a copy? Uh, anywhere. Anywhere that it is available and online, um, in bookshops, because it's published by Bloomsbury. They've got a really good reach for it. Um, and you can also find you can find out more about it on my website as well, actually. I've got some some stuff on there talking about it a little bit as well. So, yeah. But um, please, is it let me know what as, you think. Is it available as an audible? Yeah, sorry, I'm not very good at it. Am I? Yes, it's 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 available as a on Kindle. It's available as an ebook. It's available now as an audiobook. So the audiobook is narrated by an American lady because the audio rights were bought by uh, a Dreamscape, which is an American company. Mm. So um, I have a, a lovely lady called Kristen who um, kindly narrated it f- for them as well. So yeah, oh, that's a shame that we don't get to hear your dulcet tones narrating your own book. Yeah, I would have liked to have. I would have liked to have narrated it, but at the end of the day, um, I I didn't have any choice. <laughs> um, no. But I'm I'm happy with you. I got to I got to listen to voices, so I was happy to to choose. And she does it. She does a great job, and she's also really into fitness and um, is is a runner at some. Um, yeah, she enjoys running too, so that helps. It does. You've definitely got to have somebody who's enthusiastic for the subject reading it out, haven't mm. you? Otherwise, it mm. it does it does sound like they're reading a script. Mm-hmm. No, she um, does a great job. Finding you on social media. Do you do you live in all the various uh, um, channels? Yes, I live everywhere. And the best place to find me is to go to my blog, which is drjulietmcgratton.com. And that's got all my links to my socials um, on there because the handles do vary just a little bit. So Great. Well, uh, thank you very much for being with us again, Julia. It's, Julia, it's been a great podcast. I've really enjoyed this, this sort of format of asking you these questions. Sorry sorry to put you on the spot so much, but uh, <laughs> I think we've had a good discussion. And uh, have you got another book coming out soon that we need to get you back on for? Um, I'll let you know. Not not soon. I've got a few ideas, but we'll, uh, yeah, I need a little bit of a break. It's like having children. You need to just let that one wear off before you start again. <laughs> do, do you get to the end of writing the book and say never again as well? I did after the first one, um, but I learned a lot writing that. Um, with the second one, it I felt the process I'd simplified it, it to some extent and I was a lot more effective. And so I'm not scared now and I'm sure there will be a third and maybe more. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that with us and appreciate your time in being here today. Thanks ever so much for having me. You're welcome. Um, thank you, Juliet. And listeners, thank you once again for being here. We'll be back next week with more great guests. Bye for now. Thank you to Juliet for joining me on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Now, if you don't mind, I have two actions for you. 
Firstly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please could you hop onto iTunes and leave a rating and more importantly, a review. Apparently, these are the lifeblood of podcasts, so you'd be really doing me a great favour if you could do that. Alternatively, or if you're feeling generous as well as, please could you go onto your favourite social media platform and share with as many friends as possible. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest, but for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.